Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Alan, bringing you this episode of the Talks at Google podcast with one of the greatest living icons of this generation, Julie Andrews, alongside her daughter and co-writer, Emma Walton Hamilton. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. With this second memoir, Homework, a memoir of my Hollywood years, Andrews picks up the story with her arrival in Hollywood and her phenomenal rise to fame in her earliest films, Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. Andrews describes her years in the film industry, from the incredible highs to the challenging lows. Not only does she discuss her work in now classic films and her collaborations with giants of cinema and television, she also unveils her personal story of adjusting to a new and often daunting world, dealing with the demands of unimaginable success, being a new mother, the end of her first marriage, embracing two stepchildren, adopting two more, and falling in love with the brilliant and mercurial Blake Edwards. The pair worked together on numerous films, including Victor Victoria, the gender-bending comedy that garnered multiple Oscar nominations. Co-written with her daughter, Emma Walton Hamilton, and told with Andrew's trademark charm and candor, Homework takes us on a rare and intimate journey into an extraordinary life that is funny, heart-rending, and inspiring. Moderated by Alphabet's former executive chairman, Eric Schmidt, here is Julie Andrews and Emma Walton Hamilton. Homework, a memoir of my Hollywood years. Thank you, darling. Hi, my Thank dear. you. Thank Hello. you. Hello. Okay, nice to see you. you want to... Okay. Hi, everybody. Look at these. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Wow. Gosh. It was quite nice, empty nice when we walked in. <laughs> I think I can say on behalf of all of our employees, welcome to Google. Thank and you. And Alphabet. This is really... Um, a, a new experience yeah. for me, that's for sure. For both of us. <laughs> so yep. this is the first day of their book tour for a new book called Homework, which is written by both of them. It's actually the second book in a trilogy. The third book is not finished yet, right, Emma? Not started. Oh, not even started. <laughs> give me, no, just give me a month or so, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, you lived it. And I can tell yeah. you that this is an extraordinary book and well worth, well worth buying, talking about, promoting, talking about. Well, we can go now. <laughs> <laughs> and as a lifelong fan, right, I thought I would start with the part of you that I think people maybe don't know, which is the part of what it took to become you. Right, all of us who saw you said, oh, brilliant star, there she is in the movies, look at all the things she's done. But she talked a lot about her life, and we'll get into this. And she said, quote, this is from her mother. This is uh, Julie's mother, mother. Don't you dare complain about anything, not the cigarette smoke in the theater, not having a cold, nor waiting long hours. It won't do a thing for you, and nobody cares. <laughs> Don't pull rank or boast. There's always someone who could do it better than you. Get on with it, and you'll be respected so much more. She was right, I think. It's very good advice, especially for a beginner who, you know, I was very, very young when I started. She could have been a little more kind about it, though. <laughs> My mom? Yeah. I, no, she didn't say, don't you dare. Well, don't you dare uh, complain. No. Well, I, I don't think I would have, but anyway, that's what she said. Yes. It's the way it was. It stuck. But Let's in, put it that way. In the first book, 
which is, this is the second book. In the first book, you talk a lot about your childhood. And without spoiling the book, let me tell you that this childhood would fell most people. Um, it starts with the Blitz. Yes, it What's does. What's it like? I'm sorry to ask the question, but what it's like to be in London in the when blitz. the bombs are coming? Well, mercifully, I don't recall really anything else but being in the war. Uh, it probably began when I was about three. And so I, I was raised knowing war. But uh, it, was, it was scary because we went from um, uh, the, the uh, incendiary bombs, which would drop and then explode much, much later. And they were dropping all around London and we moved out into the country a little bit, but we went the wrong direction. And everybody, uh, like the Germans flying home from London, would drop all the rest of their bombs on our area. And so <laughs> we were still in the thick of it. Um, then there were the doodlebugs, which were those pilotless aircraft that kind of droned and then cut out. And if you were right underneath, you were pretty safe. If you were a little far away, they, they would cut out and then dive at an angle. And so if you were right underneath, you'd know that it was going over here somewhere. And you were trained to do a whistle of some kind. Well, my parents, uh, toward the end of the war, the air raid sirens happened literally every half an hour. Any housewife, any, any mum, anybody couldn't finish whatever they were trying to do. They couldn't finish the laundry if they were baking the roast for Sunday lunch or a cake or whatever. Couldn't finish it because the air raid siren would go off and you'd have to run to a shelter. In our case, it was a shelter that was in the garden, a, a big mound in the earth and you'd go down some steps and it was corrugated and it was covered in earth and you would hide under it till the bombs dropped and then everybody came out. But it happened so often that my mother, this wonderful mum of mine, devised <laughs> the idea of sending me out because I, I could tell the difference between a regular airplane and the doodlebugs, which droned and so on, with a whistle and a pair as, of as opera a, glasses. As, as a young girl. As a young girl. Yeah, I was only... Twelve. Well, no, no, it wasn't that, darling. It was much younger than that. Really? Yeah, because the war ended when I was like uh, 10 or something. But anyway, I, I would go out there and sit on top of this uh, uh, shelter uh, with a whistle and these opera glasses, which didn't do a damn bit of good. Um, <laughs> and the minute I heard a doodlebug approaching, then I'd blow the whistle and the family, my mother could finish baking the cake or whatever it was she was doing. But I didn't know that all the neighbors began to rely on that whistle as well. And uh, so, of course, one day I rebelled. It was pouring with rain. And I had sat out there under the umbrella and everything, but it was really bad. And England does have a lot of rain, as you know. Um, Hermione Gingold once said, England is a lovely place, but it badly needs a roof. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, true, uh, is true. Anyway, I... I rebelled and I didn't go out and I failed to blow my whistle. And all the neighbors after the bomb had dropped came pounding on the door and say, why the heck didn't she blow her whistle? We were all caught unawares. So, so do, while this is all going true on. True story, I really mean I'm not making this up. <laughs> I'm sure it's true. Um, and what a thing to live through. But you also had family dynamics that would have felled, I think pretty much any normal person. By the time you were a teenage, teenage girl, basically 16 and 17. 15 probably, yeah. Because of the <clears throat> dysfunction within your family, yeah. which you go into in great detail in the in first, the first, book, in the first I do. book. 
you ended up basically being the prime bread, breadwinner for the family right. because you were touring vaudeville. And you were working incredibly hard while literally taking care of younger siblings. Yes, two brothers. Uh, I have three brothers. But uh, when my mother divorced my father, my eldest brother went with dad and I went with mom. And then she had two more uh, boys. And I, I sort of raised them because my stepfather was an alcoholic and it, they were in vaudeville, my mother and my stepfather. And they discovered at about age seven with me that I had this freak, really freaky soprano voice. And uh, they were as surprised as anybody, I think, but <laughs> my stepfather began to give me singing lessons. He was a tenor. My mother played the piano and accompanied him. And uh, they were in vaudeville in music hall and traveling all around. And very shortly, I joined them in their act. And uh, my stepfather, I hated those lessons, you can imagine, but um, he very quickly put me in the hands of a wonderful lady who was a phenomenal singing teacher. And she gave me the technique that I've used all my life and a survival technique too for protecting a voice and so on. Um, she was phenomenal and was really my first mentor. And uh, so working with her, my voice improved and improved and improved. And about 12 years old, I got my first debut in, on the London stage. And the audience was so surprised that I could sing this incredible aria with an F above top C and twice nightly. But what's interesting to me is you had this extraordinary talent and you had this dysfunctional family home and you're running everything all during your teenage years. Yeah, I didn't and know. I didn't know anything else, though. You have to remember, uh, Eric, I, it's what it was. I, I mean... It just was. It, well, I didn't have a perspective until I wrote the first memoir, really. And that's true of the second. So, so then, um, you're so good on the stage that you end up coming to New York, again, as a basically 18, 19-year-old. stroke of great good fortune, yeah. And you end up uh, in My Fair Lady and Camelot with mm -hmm. all of the top people here, here on Broadway of the time. You're back in New York. How is New York different today than it was when you arrived? <laughs> we were talking about that. Well, you take that one, darling. No, that's it's a question so, for you. No, it's such a, it's so much busier and, and all the neighborhoods have changed considerably. I'd, uh, you know more about it than I do because you I was here. just on the way here as we were driving uh, across on the way here. I was just looking around. I haven't, I lived here for many, many years, but I haven't lived here for almost 30 years now. I live on the east end of Long Island and I was where, just where looking and remembering yeah. when there were just huge meat carcasses in this neighborhood. That's like this whole neighborhood was just meat carcasses. <laughs> my brother-in-law had his photo studio here and you had to walk past all of these carcasses to get up to his studio and have your headshot taken. And so it's changed a lot. There. I've been there. <laughs> and, and, we sh and I was going to get to this later, but Emma uh, was uh, an actress and a producer um, and did a great deal of work here in the city, mm -hmm. uh, has done an awful lot of essentially theater, theater development, talent development, and also has written about 30 children's books with her mom. With mom, mom yeah. With her mom. And yeah. a couple on your own. And a couple on my own, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, the important thing is you show up in New York, um, and as you said, it's now much busier, but it must have been pretty, a pretty big deal for a 17, 18-year-old oh, from It was, uh, honestly, it, uh, it was a sort of impact that you, it, 
just literally just reading the New York Times every day was like getting some kind of a shot in the arm or whatever because the energy and the the drive in this city coming from a small English village that was really just a little place on the railway line when I was growing up to New York. You can imagine what that was like. And during this time, you had met a handsome young gentleman well, um, <laughs> who became your first husband. Yes, in fact, he dad. came from the same town, same village. And he, not came, town. Here, he came here with you. Yes. Um, he followed. <laughs> he, he, yes, he followed. He followed the town. He was a childhood sweetheart. Uh, we lived in the same village. He was immensely talented, a wonderful theater designer. Well, he ultimately went to become quite an accomplished theater designer with many awards. Yes, costume and, and set design and film as well. And and that I, that happened in such an interesting way. But um, he did follow me, uh, came over when I, I did one show called The Boyfriend and then My Fair Lady. And in the middle of My Fair Lady, he came on over to be with me when I was very grateful for that because I was kind of lonely and uh, working so hard, uh, eight performances a week. And I was in the show for three and a half years altogether. And in the book, you talk a lot about what it takes to, to survive, to yes. survive in the city. I mean, wonderful education. You can imagine, how do you survive in wet weather? How do you survive if your leading man has a cold? What if the audience is, is uh, coughing their heads off? Or we, I, I, I honestly, I've done performances where there was a seeing eye dog in the front row <laughs> and woofing every time the curtain went up and down. <laughs> but. Right it, it couldn't have been a better experience, but but a very, it took its toll. I mean, it was really exhausting. Well, what's interesting then is you're so successful in New York that you end up getting into acting. And Walt Disney... Learning it gradually. Walt Disney had developed you and you ended up in a contract with him. Uh, I've always thought that Walt Disney was largely the creator of the animation and the animation studios, but in the book, you describe him as extremely involved in the casting and the production of the movies. Yes, I think as his company uh, developed, uh, he expanded to so many. Uh, I think this was the first really big live action animation uh, combined movie that he did. But I mean, he was always thinking beyond the box. And he, he had a whole team of people called the Imagineers who would just sit around in meetings and I'm sure you know what this feels like, Eric. You coming up with, you know, a whole list of ideas and people. He developed the um, audio animatronics that make all the uh, uh, well puppets and animated things work, like the little bird that I hold in in Mary Poppins or anything like that. Uh, I don't know if any of you've been to Disney World or Disneyland, but if you see Lincoln speaking, he gave me a view of that. Um, in the early days when I was starting to make Mary Poppins. He was so proud of it. And he was during, lovely. During this time, I think you're learning how, how to be the next level of singer, but also how to be an actress. You quote um, one of your singing teachers, quote, yeah. the amateur works until he can get it right. That was my lovely lady that was my mentor, yeah. The professional works until he cannot get it wrong. Yeah, can't go wrong. The amateur works till he gets it right. The professional works and, and, till he can't go wrong. And when you did Mary Poppins, 
Uh, this is the first of this use of giant screen, right, with a sort of the comp Well, the uh, uh, animation, yes, it's called, what was it called, darling? I can't remember the the, uh, the great yellow screen, sodium vapor, was it? Yeah, sodium vapor sodium process. Sodium vapor process, yeah, which, which Disney, of course, had the first big screen. And and you point out that it made your made your skin slightly yellow, and there were all sorts of interesting effects. It's like being in there. bright, bright, bright sunlight with lighting on top of it, yeah. <laughs> Now, you also did something else extraordinary during that movie, which is that you introduced a word into American consciousness. <laughs> well, so, thanks to the great songwriters I did, yes. Supercalo, go ahead. Okay, super, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> okay, now, okay. So, we're gonna, so I want the audience to repeat after Julie Andrews. Go, go ahead. ahead. Entertain me, please. <laughs> One, two, three, go. Super. <laughs> Bravo. Okay. Now. However, can you say it backwards? <laughs> I can. Go ahead. Doshas Ali Expiistic Tragic Ali Rubus. Wow. It's it's um <laughs> it's sort of it's phonetic, but I, I'll take it, believe me. <laughs> and, and during that time, you developed a good, relation, good working relationship with Dick Van Dyke. I did. And when I was a boy, I grew up, and he was, of course, my favorite. Oh, it, my favorite such a love. Like? Well, funny, and that body of his can just, you know, uh, can do anything. And, and he made me laugh so hard, and he was very dear. And we had a lovely time. We have friends to this day, of course. So, so did you know... Did you understand, you're now 26, 27, um, Emma's just... A very green and very young 26, 27. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think maybe that's a bit Well, modest, really, if you <laughs> think about this kid from Walton on Thames in England, and, and I was learning on my feet everywhere I went. It was like racing to catch up with the great good fortune that was in but, front but, of me. But these people were not stupid. They understood the talent that Well, they could tell that I could sing very well. And they understood, they, they understood, they saw something in you that you, you may not... That I did not see in myself, that's right. true, yes. When, when you saw Mary Poppins and you saw its production, how did you perceive yourself? Well, I was rather stunned, actually, because uh, filmmaking is so different from theater. You know, in theater, you start at the beginning, you finish at the end of a story, it's full figure the whole evening long. And in film, you could start shooting in the middle of the movie and it could be in close up or it could be in a waist shot or it could be a full figure and many, many takes. And then you could shoot the end of the film and it's all to do with the expense of, you know, are we filming in the castle this week? Because all the scenes in the castle will have to be filmed at the same time and so on to save expenses. And so it's so, totally different and the different lenses on the cameras and it was quite an education and I knew nothing about it at the time. So, so at this point you start meeting and dealing with Hollywood, right? That's right and it's and why the book is called Homework is that it really is the amount of work that goes on in Hollywood. I don't think any, everybody sees the glamorous movie and you know, thinks that it's all red carpets and, and tiaras and, and lovely gowns. And it really, the work behind all that and the talent in terms of all the craftsmen, the, 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 the um, cameraman, the, you know, the lighting, the director of photography, the gaffers that pull the cameras and 
all of that. It's yeah. fascinating. And, and during this time, you started to work with a young uh, James Garner. Right. Uh, a young, uh, I mean, just lots of other interesting people. James Coburn, who ultimately, these are fantastic. I right? know. He, his what first were, they, were, they as, were they ahead of you? Were they less developed than oh, you? Oh, no. James, Jimmy Garner was ahead of me and, and was had done good movies with Doris Day and a few other things. He'd also been on Broadway, too, in his early years. But um, Coburn hadn't been seen that much and became a huge star. This was the second film I made after Mary Poppins called The Americanization of Emily. Which, which is a, much of a cult classic, I might add. It is. Thank you, uh, Eric. For those yeah. of you who have not... No, no, no. For those of you who have not been following this... Yeah, it's, it's a black actually, and white film about the war, believe it or not. And it's considered very thoughtful. And again, it's, it, when you see it in context, it's yeah. really something... And it's written by Paddy Chayefsky, the great uh, playwright. And so, so at this point, right, a strange sort of good fortune happens because you would naturally have done My Fair Lady. And instead... The Sound of Music comes along. Well, actually, it was Poppins. Mary Poppins, yeah. Mary Poppins was the one that... Came along. ...that was waiting sort of... I, I didn't do the movie of, of My Fair Lady and was feeling a bit, you know, sad, but understood it because I, other than being on Broadway, uh, I wasn't known the, and they needed a big, big stars to cast the film. But it's very hard to be upset when Walt Disney comes along and says, would you like to make Mary Poppins? And uh, wow, what an amazing chance that was. That's the film that made the, so, you know. So at this point, you're, you're clearly a major star for Disney, right? And Sound of Music comes along. Yes. Um, today, Sound of Music is the third highest grossing film in history. Wow, still, huh? Still. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so... It is for what you will forever be known for, right, in terms of impact and scale globally. Well, aren't I the lucky one, really? And, yeah. uh, and you talk in, in the book, in this book, you talk some about the actual filming in Austria. The music was done in sound stages. You yeah. talk about the people. This book starts where the other one, where the first memoir left off. This is now the Hollywood years and... Okay. And so, coming to, to um, so there's Los lot, Angeles. There's lots of interesting parts. In, in the filming, of the, as a fan of the, mu of the musical and having watched it over the weekend, it is so extraordinary, uh, both for its time and its the quality. Beautiful to look at, yeah. yeah lovely you know, music. Just, just everything done right. Um, one of the scenes you talk about is when you, uh, the, the scene which is in the opening where you're singing the sound of music in the field with the... the uh, mountains around you, Yes. and there's obviously a camera coming straight at you. Tell us what happens. <laughs> <clears throat> well, today it would probably be a camera on a drone, on a drone. <laughs> but uh, in those days there weren't any drones, and uh, it, it was in a helicopter. It was a very brave cameraman hanging out the side of this helicopter, <laughs> strapped in, and lit, no door, just, just filming, and I was walking across the field in that opening, as you know, and um, then all I had to do for the first shot was turn and begin to sing, at which point they cut to a close-up of me singing. But there were several takes needed before the cameraman was pleased and, and I hit my marks correctly and it was this vast field. So the helicopter was this end of a huge field and I was at the other end and we started walking to each other toward each other, or oh, I started walking and he started flying. Um, and uh, this thing was coming at me like a 
sort of crab sideways in this weird way, this coming across the grass. I could see the grass bending as it, as it flew over it. And then he got his shot, and as he went around me to get another shot and to go back to the beginning, and I had to go back to the beginning of the field, the downdraft from the jet engines just leveled me into the ground. <laughs> and uh, so I came up, you know, eventually spitting mud and hay and God knows what. And I got really angry. Um, I kept thinking, can't he just see that he's knocking me down every time he starts again? And, um, and, and, so he, does I, it, and he does it even closer. Well, <laughs> he seemed to. Anyway, I don't think he could see me waving and telling him to go make a wider circle, because all I got was, great, let's do one more, you know. The, uh, so uh, your, your, uh, your male actor there, a singer, is Christopher Plummer. Yes. And also in, a great... In the movie, there's tremendous affection between the two of you. What yeah. was it like in real life? Um, oh, Chris was... Uh, he was one of <clears throat> Hollywood's bad boys that were delicious, if you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, he loved... <clears throat> he loved to live well. He loved food. He loved his uh, wines. Still does, but... but when it came to actually uh, performing on camera, he was superb. And we did become fast friends. And he would sometimes encourage, and I would watch him and think, my God, he is so good. Because he'd done Shakespeare, and I never had. And uh, my background was vaudeville. So uh, we got on very well. And as I say, we have remained friends. And, and you had the benefit of this extraordinary score, right? Yes. Yeah, Roger yes. Um, were the, um, did you have any particular songs you liked or didn't like? Dope yeah. Um, Edelweiss, so forth? Edelweiss was actually, although I didn't sing it, it is my favorite song in the score. And I have sung it, and I've sung it on albums, and I've sung it in concerts, but uh, not, in the, not really in the movie, just joining in with the rest. And it is such a beautiful song, and it's about, loving one's homeland, which is, uh, home to me means the most enormous amount as you could imagine. And I love that song. And I love my favorite things. And uh, the only one that was also a little hard was um, I Have Confidence because some of the, and that wasn't written by um, uh, Oscar Hammerstein. It was, uh, he had sadly um, passed away when that film was, when that song was needed. And so uh, the, the lyrics were lacking a little bit. So, so, and one of the things you talk about in the book is that the, the real Von Trapp family were in a house that wasn't, you didn't use. You used no, we used, two, the, we used the front of one house and the back of another to and, represent the villa. And a set. And, I can and, tell, and a Hollywood set. And a, oh, Hollywood sets galore, yeah. I mean, and, the interiors and so and, on. In fact, you talk about this, the way Hollywood works, and they build these huge sets. A huge sets, beautiful. Um, that yeah. did not deter me as a young man when I first went to Salzburg to take the tour of Sound of Music. And did you go to the original villa? Yes, and I went to, you know, they give you a little handout and you go along all <laughs> day. Um, in the did book, you, you, did you learn about the history? I, I did not, and in fact, in the book, you tell this horrific history. Horrific. That after the von Trapps had left, it was used. By they Hitler. escaped. Uh, actually, they didn't go over the mountains. They they went by train, which was at the bottom of their very large garden. A train went through on its way to Italy, and they uh, got up at the crack of dawn one day and leaving 
everything behind as they had to do. And they hid in the, they literally hid in the train to get across the border. Yeah, and went across the border. And, um, and then came to England and then came to the United States. But um, after they had left for good, it must have been terrifying to seven kids and husband and wife. And they, uh, it was their whole villa that they had lived in most of their lives had, was taken over by the Germans and it, Himmler lived in this villa. And some of the things that went on there from his point of view, I mean, they're just appalling. He, well, he had a wall it's built. It's in the book, right? It's in, all in the book. Yeah. <laughs> all in the book. Because he built, for, for starters, he built a wall uh, around the whole property ostensibly to protect his trees, but really to keep people out because Hitler would come and visit and so on. And uh, he got a large group of Jewish people to come and build the wall and promptly lined them all up at the end and shot them dead. And uh, it, you can feel it in, in the villa. You, you feel this sort of, the, the pores of the villa somehow absorbed that did, misery. Did, did you get to know the actual von Trapps? Yes, I did meet Tell her. Us I met her. Tell us about them. About three, well, not all the family, but I met her. She was great. She actually is in the movie. Uh, you don't really see her. She's in, she walks across the background when I'm at the fountain and I, I dash the uh, water into the face of the statues. Um, but she was lovely, uh, very jolly and, and quite sort of strong and uh, really, and then she appeared on my television show uh, once or twice, I can't remember, darling. Yeah. yeah. The, um, and we yodeled, or tried to yodel together. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should move a bit more into how life was like. What happens, of course, and we go into this in great detail in the book, is that um, you begin to question some of the assumptions of your own life you end up with a psychiatrist, you go through all of this. Well, I, I needed some help because some help. things, I had I'd made three movies, none of which had been released, and that's uh, Poppins and The Americanization of Emily and The Sound of Music. <clears throat> and I was beginning to have a final time making movies and playing at that. And uh, But meanwhile, you have a child, you have a husband. Yeah. Things are not going so well with him. That's right. And uh, so I needed a lot of things sorting out in and, my head. And, and to your credit, you, you face those things directly, which I think is your personal style in general. Um, and ultimately, uh, you and Tony separated. It felt at the time like one of the <laughs> bravest things I'd ever done because I had nobody to support me. I just knew that I wanted clarity and I didn't have it. So Emma, what do you remember of this period? You would have been a little girl. Yeah, very, very, very little. little actually. I mean, you I, mostly know just Blake. Yeah. I mean, you know your dad, of course you do, but. Um, I was only about 18 months old when they separated, when my mother and father separated. And, um, and so sadly, my earliest yeah. memories really involve already my, both my step-parents being in the family. I mean, I have a few vague memories before. I remember meeting my stepfather for the first time. I remember meeting my stepsister on my dad's side for the first time. And I think in the spirit of sort of moving, moving a bit forward in the narrative, a number of things happened to both of you. So first place, you're, you're with your mom, you're going back and forth to your dad, um, and you're busy making new movies. You spent some time with Hitchcock, right? I did. What was he like? Very interesting gentleman. 
Uh, is he like the stereotype we have? Yes, he is very much. <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is hear him say good evening and you, <laughs> you kind of know uh, what Hitch is like. But very knowledgeable, very funny, uh, uh, very, oh, what's the word I would use? Um, sort of not, uh, he didn't like, he, he almost wanted to be the one person in my life at that time. He loved ladies who were blonde and- Controlling? Con well, maybe that would be a good, a good word, but uh, very kind too. And he would, he, he said to me one day, uh, his cameraman was asking what kind of a lens to put on a certain scene and suggested one. And Hitchcock said, on a woman, uh, whatever the number the lens was, he said, good heavens, no, it, you know. And I said, you know, I wish I knew more about camera lenses and stuff. And he said, come with me. And he took me to a table and for the next half hour or so drew what the different lenses did. And in other words, if you have too wide a lens, your nose grows longer in profile and so on. So. He said, don't ever let them shoot you that way or this way. And then he was a, he loved art. And he would say, come and look in the camera. I've made a Mondrian. And uh, I did know, thank God, who Mondrian was. And I looked in the camera. And indeed, the background was a Mondrian. And Paul Newman and I were going to be standing in front of it. So about this time, you come across Blake who becomes... <laughs> That's a wonderful description. Come across. Yes, yes, it's true. Right, because you're in the Hollywood. He's in Hollywood. And yes. he's busy doing the Pink Panther series. Well, he had made uh, a lot of them, but, but oh, certainly the first... He'd already made the, the first, first two, yes. And, and this, in the book, you tell a story of your... I'm just going to call it a first, the first real date. Yes. Well, how we met was extraordinary too, Eric. Where here we were. Uh, I was heading to my therapist at the time, and this, in the middle, uh, it's so hokey, it's ridiculous, um, in the middle of Sunset Boulevard on the Meridian, uh, waiting for all the traffic to let me through, uh, a car coming in the opposite direction pulled up beside me, also waiting, and I looked over and this nice looking gentleman was driving this Rolls Royce, and then it happened again a couple of days later, and then again, at which point, this nice looking gentleman rolled down the window and said, are you going to where I just came from? And I presumed he'd been in therapy too because that was the street where <laughs> most of the uh, analysts uh, hung out, let's say. And I said, I, I think so. He said, well, good luck. I'm Blake Edwards. And I went, oh, uh, how lovely to meet you, Mr. Edwards. And then about two weeks later, I got a call that he would love to meet and talk about a project, which we eventually did. And uh, we began dating from that point onwards. And I tried sort of quite hard not to fall in love with this extremely charismatic gentleman. <laughs> uh, talented, funny as all get out, black sense of humor. And uh, I tell you, it was impossible. He just was a very winning fellow. So and tell, eventually you, we married, yeah. You tell a story where you're driving along in Malibu and you pull over. Yeah, well, he asked me if I'd like to go for a drive one evening. And I was completely... By the way, in the Rolls Royce. In the Rolls Royce, yes. <laughs> and I was completely dressed up, having been to some obligatory um, uh, evening where, where I had been giving a speech or doing something. 
So he, he called and I said, I'm home now. And he said, well, would you like to go for a drive? And I looked at my watch and I said, well, I'm all dressed up and it's 11 o'clock. He said, I'll be right round. So he came around and we drove all the way along the Pacific Coast Highway, hugely romantic. And uh, eventually he pulled over and it was one of those really great nights. The moon was rising over the sea and everything. And I thought, dear God, if he doesn't kiss me, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> and he did. And that was that from was, then on. That was, that was it. And in the book, you actually, uh, with, with, I think, great sincerity and, and care, talk about his struggles. Yes. He had a number of uh, physical problems. that Huge that, physical problems, which him gave him a great deal of pain. With self-medication. Then he began to self-medicate, tried so hard to fight it. He did have an addiction problem, ultimately, but kicked it and came back on and kicked it and came back on. And, and you also talk about... Um, his world as a director and as a producer, and yeah. you're an ally, you do movies together. Mm. Um, one of the things, scenarios you talk about is Peter Sellers, and uh, who you just, you can only, I can only say it is not in the best of descriptions. <laughs> Peter Sellers was very difficult for you. Uh, difficult, but, you know, I, I mean, one of those incredibly talented guys that could play any role or make you laugh till you fell down, but, I, but didn't seem... I could be wrong, and I don't wish to offend in any way, not his family or anybody, because I knew him very well, and he and Blake were very close. But he didn't seem to know who to be. He was just there, and, and great roles, you know, were placed upon him, and he acted them so well. Well, it wasn't well towards the No, he had a heart years. problem. Well, well, yeah. he, he, died, he died very young. Yeah, quite young. He died young, young and yeah. he was on medication that didn't agree with him. And, and it made him... a big depressive too mm -hmm. and it was Blake would come home and say how hard it was to direct somebody in a comedy who is sodden with depression and uh, he had to eventually work around what he was asking Peter to do so that it made him look uh, funny rather than Peter creatively being funny. And, and just to finish this point eventually in the book you talk about a movie that you all made which you're convinced is autobiographical of your husband, mm. involving a depressed uh, fellow, fellow it, it was, family members, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And that you pointed out that the act of doing that movie somehow made your husband better. Yes, it, it did help an enormous amount. Well, the thing that I realized was that he knew. He knew all that he was, and I did too, but... Uh, with an instinctive knowledge that I didn't voice always. And it was not easy on th this one or the rest of my family. I mean, we, he had two children by a previous marriage and we adopted two children. Tell that story about you being in the middle and the end and the... Oh. <laughs> just, just for that, a second there. Just that I've, I've had the bizarre experience of, of uh, being on every single level of the birth order spectrum at various points <laughs> of my life. Yes. So I'm, I'm the only child of my mom and dad, but then I inherited two st older step-siblings when she remarried, so I became the youngest on that family, and then I inherited a younger step-sibling on my dad's side, and I became the eldest in that family. And then they adopted two younger, my two younger sisters, and then I was the middle child, so. <laughs> and, 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 I'm and, and, the, and, the only eldest, middle, youngest. Yeah, and, so Emma, and 
staunch and stalwart and brave. She really was. And the two of you are incredibly close. You've written a book together. We've written 30, 32 books together. This is your life. difference there, yeah. This is this and their predecessor is your Yes. Emma, when you were young, you were aware of your mother's fame, obviously, and your and your stepfather's fame, and it describes going back and forth and caregivers and so forth. Somehow, it all worked out fine, right? God many, knows how. <laughs> in many Hollywood scenarios, it doesn't work out so yes. fine. What do you credit this to? Well, I think a couple of things, truthfully, Eric. One is that mom made a monumental effort being being the very much the caretaker and the child of a very damaged home and the child of a damaged home herself she made a monumental effort to uh, create as safe and nurturing a home environment one of the reasons why home continues to come up as a title and a theme in these books um, as possible a lot of that, I also think, had to do with the number of years that you put in working on yourself and therapy and, yeah. and how that enabled her to parent well. And then I also had my father, and I had the ability to leave Hollywood and come to New York and spend and summers and Christmases and, and Easters state. and so and, forth and here. And yeah. so. It also sounds like your parents worked hard to protect you from the paparazzi and the weird stuff they that did. goes on. Yeah. So in the book, you... And I, then I have I, to add a PS to that, Eric, and that is that she has the, from my point of view, the, the greatest heart and generosity. I mean, when I say, would you mind if we adopted a child and then would you mind if we adopted another and she said well all right as long as I don't have to babysit you know and, and, and then and was not the entirely first. generous <laughs> but you were the first to babysit almost and, yeah. and, and, and indeed it worked out extraordinarily well but it's yeah. important to understand the circumstance of this adoption uh, Vietnam had ended this was 1975 yes the problem of orphans you and your second husband had been unable to conceive or had chosen not to conceive or what have you. Well, we were trying. And the, <laughs> the important thing was you had decided to, to help out by adopting a Vietnamese child, a Vietnamese baby. We'd also had a wonderful exposure to um, these beautiful children because we, were, uh, we helped found the board of Operation USA, which is an um, um, international relief agency, which is which is terrific. It's small and does wonderful work. And Blake and I um, helped to get that on its feet, and it's so, still going strong. And in the book, you talk the stories about what it's like to adopt a, a child from an orphanage yes. in the middle of a war. The baby shows up, and the baby has a number of medical problems. Oh, yes, they address, both did when they but came. But headbanging. Tell us yeah. about headbanging. Well, you know, when you're, uh, when you're put in a nursery with a hundred other kids in an orphanage in, in Vietnam or in Saigon, as it was then, um, the noise factor at any given moment, day and night, must have been tremendous. And so um, I think headbanging in, in the case of one of my children... Um, you should explain what that, what that is, well, headbanging. Well, it, it was either a rocking backwards and forwards this way or a, not the kind that comes from rage but more from a deliberate soothing effect. Rhythmic. Yeah, rhythmic headbanging. And it came from saying in Vietnam, I believe, because I asked a lot about it and what did it mean. And the nurse that brought my Amelia to me, my, the eldest of the two, she said, it's saying I'm in this little cot and I'm 
here and this is my space because the noise around them and, and the chaos would have been so great that by headbanging it would mean that that identified where you were and who you were. Uh, at least that's the uh, explanation that I accepted. And in the book we learned that things came out quite well. <laughs> the, the, all the family members turned out well. The, our, the adopted children turned out very well. Yeah. Your husband, uh, second husband, uh, dealt with his various issues successfully um, and ultimately died some years ago. Yeah, we were married 41 years, and 44 I knew him, so that's quite rare for Hollywood, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and there are so many other aspects of this book that I could cover. You know, I want to know all about Dudley Moore and the filming of Ben. Uh, he's so adorable, he was. <laughs> But I think we should spend some time on the questions from the audience and the people in the door. That's so fine. That's uh, yeah. okay. Um, the first question comes from, these are all employee questions. Um, the first question comes from Jillian. From Jillian. I grew up on the Princess Diaries. <laughs> okay. What made you decide to take that role? P.S. Will you adopt me? <laughs> <laughs> Only oh. if I don't have to babysit. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, what made me accept the role? Really, the director, uh, Gary Marshall, uh, I met because he was thinking of me for the, for the role of, of Queen Clarice. And uh, I, he was so adorable and so funny and knew so much. And uh, I just fell in love with him. And he asked me so many questions that I might, what, if I did do the movie, what would be the thing that was sold in Genovia? And I said, well, probably if, let's say it's between uh, France, uh, south of France and Spain, let's say, right on the border, maybe they'd have pears <laughs> and maybe they'd make, the nuns would make lace. And of course, pears and lace were all over the film. <laughs> But he was such a darling to work with. And the first one was so successful that the second one came along after. This is from Dima. What is your favorite, favorite thing from Sound of Music? Whoa. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Uh, just off the top of my head, so much. I mean, those Alps and that music. And uh, how can you single out a single favorite thing? Um, I would have said the, you would have said the mountains. Yes, That's the Alps. Well, you, there can you, are, see that, yeah. you can see that in the cinematography. Mm -hmm. you, in fact, the book, you talk about the yeah. rain. Well, nobody <clears throat> uh, told our producers that Salzburg, where we filmed, uh, has the world's seventh highest annual rainfall. <laughs> and so uh, it rained always. The clouds would build up and it would be beautiful to look at. And then it would pour. And we would have to wait under tarpaulins and tents and way up on a mountain somewhere. And if there was the slightest bit of sun coming out, dash out, throw off our blankets and, and perform. And, and there's a question for Emma. Okay. How has your relationship with your mom uh, <laughs> changed? <laughs> How's your relationship during the book? I mean, to, to go through your, your entire mother's history, and you've been working on this for four or five years. She knows totally. me very well. Yes, that would be an understatement. What well, was the, well, the question is, I want to read it precisely, what was the most surprising and frustrating? <laughs> part of the process? Yes, I think they're asking about your mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Gosh. Well, I have to say that we because we know each other so well and we've worked together for so many years and we've written so many books, there wasn't much that was surprising. Um, other than that with this particular book, I was there as a child throughout most of it and share many of the memories, but I share them from the perspective of a child's point of view. And so it was it was surprising and interesting to see when I thought, you know, mom has it all together because mom's a grown-up and grown-ups know everything, <laughs> you know, that in fact, according to her diaries or according to the conversations we were having, that she was feeling vulnerable or insecure or questioning. Just about or all the time, yeah. 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 So that was that was kind of interesting, remembering my younger self. Of course, I get it now because I'm a mom and I know that you never really feel like you have, have it all answered and figured out. Frustrating... Probably the most frustrating thing was that she kept wanting to go back and rewrite the first chapter. <laughs> it is my, and, it's really the way I yeah, love to work. And my job was to help keep moving the story forward. And so I kept saying, Mom, we'll, go, we'll have plenty of time to edit. We'll have plenty of time to polish. We've got to move on. We've got to get the bones of this down. And she said, I just want to go back to that one sentence where... If I got the and, first chapter right, I figured the style would reveal itself or it would flow from then on. It didn't, but... <laughs> <laughs> it was an yeah. attempt. Read the whole book is my advice. You've written three, right? right. Wow, well, then you know. Um, <laughs> I had people help. <laughs> so did I. Exactly. <clears throat> uh, including my daughter, I might add. Uh, Isn't that great? Oh, how lovely. The, uh, uh, this is from Karen. Growing up, one of my favorite books was Mandy. Oh. It quickly became a favorite of my girls, who are now 16 and 20. They also love the really great Wang Doodles. Yes. Note to audience, from our questioner, buy these for your elementary school readers. Can you talk about what you decided to be a writer and what your inspiration for Mandy was? <laughs> oh, dear. <clears throat> uh, we were making a film, Blake and I were making our first film, which was a huge flop ultimately, and you'd think that would have been disaster and would have ended the relationship, but it didn't. Um, but we were uh, on location in Ireland, and uh, we took all the kids, packed everything up, uh, uh, tucked them under our wing, so to speak, and we stayed in this extraordinary castle-like mansion, uh, which had been phenomenal in, in olden days, in a thousand acre estate we filmed on that estate we filmed in that manor that great manor house uh, and we lived there as well which helped pay a lot of the bills and so on um, but the children for that summer ran well went wild I mean they didn't pick up they didn't make beds they didn't brush their teeth they did nothing and so i mean we were waiting for her to snap her fingers and the whole thing would clean itself. well thank you <laughs> anyway i finally said oh you know the mary poppins in me rose up and i said okay guys what we're going to do is we're going to play a game if you cannot at least uh, put the laundry away or brush your teeth at night or whatever then you're going to have to pay a forfeit uh, and uh, the eldest girl, Jennifer, who was Blake's eldest daughter, my stepdaughter, said, uh, okay, uh, Jules, but you have to play the game too. And I said, well, what do I have to do? <laughs> she said, well, you have to stop swearing so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't uh, vicious or anything. It was just exasperation, really. But 
to their ears, it was not appropriate. And I said, okay, I'll play the game too. And of course I was the first to lose. <laughs> so uh, it didn't take long. And so when I said, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what's my forfeit going to be? Uh, Jennifer, the, the eldest girl said, okay, uh, write me a story. And I thought at first to write her a little fable or something. And then I thought, no, it's a wonderful chance to bond with this stepdaughter that obviously adored her dad and wasn't sure about stepmom. How did you balance your professional career and your personal and family life? How did you, how did you do it? Read the book. Yeah. <laughs> Read the, yes, because you can see that's part of the homework in the title. Uh, there was so much happening. And they say when you write a biography that you relive your life all over again. And it wasn't until I did at work on this book that I realized just how really hard we all were working and it, there wasn't time to absorb uh, much, but I was sure about one thing, and that is that if my kids were all right, I was all right. But if one of them was sick or one of them had a fever and I wasn't sure that they were going to be all right, there was no way that I could concentrate on on the job really, although I obviously had to and, and tried, but it, I admire any parent that holds down a really big job and has kids and makes it all work. And that's really the, the underlying theme of the whole, I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's called homework, is because of that tension between home life and work. And trying and to reconcile to them the both, yeah. yeah. And, but, and but, but the work itself, too. But you describe a grueling, again, this goes back to when you were 10, 11, and 12. You were working seven days a week, you were flying everywhere, you were performing every day. <laughs> Driving, training, Driving, yeah, every, flying, going on the train. Uh, back yeah. and forth. Uh, your first marriage suffered, your second marriage suffered, uh, your kids came out great. Um, yeah, well, I suffered it, it for 40 years and was very happy a great deal of that time okay. in the second marriage, that's for sure. The, um, another thing you and I spoke about a bit earlier is um, this question of now versus, I mean, your fame and impact has been 75 years. This is an extraordinary achievement. It stuns and me, really. I don't feel as old as I am. And... Uh, except in my bones occasionally. But, uh, and we talked a little bit about today, uh, a, a woman, a girl of this extraordinary gift that you had would have debuted on YouTube, right? That's true, would have done that today, yeah. yeah. And, and one of the questioners, uh, this is from Connie, says, what are your thoughts on dealing with public scrutiny in the social media age, right? Mm -hmm. Nowadays, everyone is a critic, everyone is a fan, everything And is the closed. Me Too movement is, is hot and heavy and right, but one has to be so much more careful and aware, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that too, darling. She's great, because she is the next generation. Well, down. my kids are really the next generation. Yeah. But no. And I learn a lot from them too, yeah. Yeah, all my grandkids. So, so I'll have a final question uh, and then a summary, uh, I think on behalf of all of us at Google and Alphabet. Um, this is from, from B. Uh, which character was the most challenging and why? In the book you talk about, for example, Victor Victoria. That was tough, very tough. What about some, which, is the, which was the most challenging as an actress and as a performer? Well, it's, a, I guess it was Duet for One, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yes. Uh, it's which a film that, that I haven't mentioned yet because the book only goes so far. Uh, the book, this book now goes to when I come back to Broadway after 30 years for 
the musical of uh, on Broadway of Victor Victoria. But after that, I made a film which was truly challenging, Eric. It was called Duet for One, about a musician who had MS and a violinist who uh, really couldn't play anymore. And the loss of, oh, that, that's really, it was almost prophetic. It was the, I was in a wheelchair most of the film and, and trying so hard to um, uh, do it well. And it was a very tough director at the time for me. Uh, but it turned out to be one of the most dramatic films I've ever made, I think. And it, would you believe that this sad tale opened on Christmas Day <laughs> and disappeared as quickly? <laughs> and uh, it's hardly been seen, I don't think. Tell us about the third book, which you... Well... You, you, when, when does it come out? <laughs> Are you kidding? Emma? We said... Well, I mean, she'd love to begin. I think. Yeah, I'd love to begin because we are on a. We have been on a roll now. Yes, for we the have. Last, That's true. The last two and a half years or so, we've been on a roll with with the, the process, um, but it very much depends on how this book does and um, if we have a if good we get asked of time. to write the third one and. Yes. We'll have to promise not I to take I think the audience years, has though. an opinion. Well, yes, this one did take almost three years to write, so... Uh, Next I one mean, will be we'll our be day jobs kept getting in the way. If you won't keep rewriting the first chapter... No, I'll we'll try, be. I'll try, so, I'll try. So, Don't nag, I'll darling. <laughs> so, 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 as we were chatting before we came in, I, I, I was struck by Julie's drive and enthusiasm. And when you read about her life, you read that she had an awful lot of help and a lot of people who taught her and she was constantly learning and I said what has driven you and she said something very interesting what did said, I say <laughs> you said that you're driven now to even greater curiosity yes I am even, very curious you're yeah. even working harder to learn more because when you were young because you were in vaudeville you were not I educated was doing and I hadn't been educated and and, you know, you open one door and you find there's another door behind it and then another and then another. And it's, I, I, I hope I can help my grandchildren be curious because it's the best thing uh, for being sad or bored or anything else if you're curious. Uh, I mean, for instance, how can you say you're bored in New York City? There is so much to do. And um, I love that part of life. So, so let me finish with your quote. So you had your mother's, well, we started with your mother's quote. Mm -hmm. This is your quote. This is the advice Julie gives to all of her friends, people who come up to her asking for things. Quote, learn your craft, do your homework. Opportunity will come along when you least expect it, as it did for me. You may not even recognize it at the time. Your job is to be as ready as possible when that good fortune comes your way. I cannot thank you enough for the book which I encourage you all to buy and read for being here at Google. Thank you guys both. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. So nice. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at talks at Google. Talk soon.